You're listening to That'll Preach. This is uh, Brian. I'm here with my co-host, Paul, and we're going to be continuing our little series on Calvin's book, A Little Book on the Christian Life. If you've been following along, we've been going through this book chapter by chapter, or really maybe a couple chapters at a time. And uh, we're going to be finishing up the book today. We're going to look at chapters four and five. Make sure you pick up a copy. You can find one online on Amazon. It's like 10 bucks from Ligonier Ministries, and it's well worth the investment. But uh, we're going to be looking again at these final chapters where John Calvin talks about hating this earthly life and the miseries of this earthly life, while also how do you as a Christian with your perspective in eternity how do you use or utilize the earthly life, the goods of creation for that heavenly good? So he's working on two fronts. He's trying to say, as Christians, we have to meditate on the future life, that this world is not the end of our existence and that we shouldn't hold too tightly the things of the world. Well, he also tries to counterbalance that, and we'll discuss on whether he does a good job of that or not. But he tries to counterbalance that instinct by saying, no, there are good things about creation. They just have to be ordered toward the, the highest things, the glorification of God and all those types of things. So, Paul, uh, maybe we can get started just looking at this uh, chapter four, where he talks about meditating on the future life. And he starts off with a provocative little phrase. He speaks about how uh, in whatever trouble comes to us, we should always set our eyes on God's purpose to train us to think little of this present life and inspire us to think more about the future life. And then he goes on later to say that sometimes he reduces people to poverty. Uh, he gives them little wealth. Um, and he even says that so they aren't enticed too much by the advantages of married life, he lets them be frustrated by the offense of their spouse, humbles them by the wickedness of their children, or afflicts them with the loss of a child. However, there are times when God deals more gently with his people, yet even when he does, so they don't become puffed up with pride or inflated with self-confidence, he sets before their eyes disease and danger to teach them how unstable and fleeting are those good things that come to men who are subject to death. Yeah. So he's essentially saying that sometimes to teach people not to, I guess you could say, idolize the things of the world or to place all their hope in the things of the world, sometimes he has Marriages have fights. That's why you get into fights with your spouse yeah. because you're in a fallen world and you shouldn't put all your hope in them. Your kids, they're not uh, the next generation of Christian soldiers. Maybe you would hope they would be or the perfectly obedient children you hoped they would be if you just catechize them well. Mm -hmm. Suddenly you realize actually they're sinners and they don't care about some of the things that you teach them and uh, it's difficult. And then he says, this one was hard. He afflicts them with the loss of a child. Yeah. Now, he says, this isn't for everybody. Sometimes God is more gentle, but even when he's gentle with people, he puts you around suffering. So you're either going to suffer yourself to teach you don't place your hope in these finite things, or you're going to see suffering in the people around you. And all of this is God humbling us to set our eyes on eternity. Yeah. What did you think about this opening salvo that Calvin fires? I think, I think there's definitely some truth here, but I wonder if some of it's a little bit too quick. And you can see how this follows from the discussion in the previous chapter. Suffering enables our salvation. It builds character. It undermines our self-reliance. And here Calvin's just putting a little bit more flesh on that argument. The miseries of the Christian life stimulate in us to aspire to the future life. So sufferings here make us less worldly so that we can look towards the eternal eschaton, the things that we are made for. But you, you got to wonder... What I mean, Calvin, Calvin seems to think that God, that all these things, all these miseries 
are one intended by God. And maybe that's a harsh way of putting it, but I think Calvin is saying that. And two, it doesn't seem like he has room for non-judgment instances, right? It seems like why can't, or sometimes we can just point to certain things and have a sort of open, well, this is just, we live in a fallen world. But Calvin wants to say that God seems to have more of an active role in bringing these things about because of the specific point, that he wants us to not focus on the worldly things. So God intends to disappoint us so that we can look towards the next life. And I'm sure there's some truth to that, but it, I don't know, it, it borders, and it, it's something that I think he takes back a little bit in the next chapter. So we'll, I guess we'll get to that, but I mean, I don't know, reading it, all the pastoral stuff in the first three chapters, I don't know how you can tell somebody that God has inflicted bereavement on you to help you lessen your hold on this life. It just seems, it doesn't seem like this is the same pastoral Calvin that we've been meeting in the last three chapters. Um, and it seems like his theodicy or his explanation for evil or suffering here is, is maybe a little bit too quick or one-dimensional. And doesn't square well with what he says in the next chapter that no, earthly blessings are good, that children are good, that creation is good. And so we have to see all the good things as coming from God. And I guess, I guess there is a little bit of a tension there in the Christian view that we don't want to be worldly, but how can you avoid worldliness while also respecting that earthly blessings are still good gifts from God? And that it's, it's, a, it's a tension that the Christian has to live in. But I wonder if in this chapter, Calvin is erring too much on the side of avoid worldliness. It's, it's almost like it's a, I know Gnostic is sort of overused, but he has this like material world is bad, earthly world is bad. And so a Christian has to just look towards the eternal. And I don't know. Charitably, he might be saying that when you recognize the finitude of these good things, that's actually what provokes you toward gratitude. But he does talk about how if we pass by a funeral or walk among graves, then because our eyes are confronted with the image of death, we eloquently philosophize on the emptiness of life. And then later on he says, and then we can just move on with our life. And so this is the case for him and probably through all human history. It's not just a modern issue, although it's probably exacerbated by technology and our prosperity and all these types of things. But Calvin in his day, he's recognizing that people will walk right by a graveyard. They'll wax eloquent about, man, life is short. And then they'll just move on with their life. And so he's talking about a kind of flippancy we have with our mortality. And so that might be why he's being a little more hyperbolic, because he's trying to press home the point of saying, we're not really dealing with the finitude of life, the finitude of things, how difficult life really is um, if, if we're just constantly trying to avert our gaze from the graveyard. Yeah. And I, I, perhaps there might be some elements in which he's being a little too just grit your teeth and bear it to this life till you die. But he's probably pushing hard against what he sees in his time as a flippancy about death or a lack of really grappling with the finitude of life. I think it's even more than just the grit your teeth and bear it. He says, if heaven is our country, what can the earth be but a place of exile? Then he keeps contrasting heaven and earth. And he says, if departure from this world is entrance into life, what is this world but a sepulcher? What is residence in it but immersion in death? If to be freed from the body is to gain full possession of freedom, what is the body but a prison? So he has almost like a platonic view of matter. Yes. Like the body is just this prison holding us down. And one day God's going to free us and we're going to live as these immortal unembodied souls. 
And that's what reality is going to happen in the next life. What we have now is just shackles and shadows and matter and prisons. And it, I mean, it, it, it's the sort of view that I think a lot of evangelicals hold today that God's going to one day free us from our material bodies and the matter is bad. And it's not, it's not the full Christian view that we get in the, in the history of the church. And, and I'm not saying that Calvin doesn't have a more sophisticated view, but here it just, it, it reads a little bit too quick. And if read alone, it could actually, I think, do a lot of damage to how we think about the theology of the body, theology of creation, all that sort of stuff. Well, then he does say, though, however, the contempt for this present life that believers should cultivate shouldn't produce hatred of this life or ingratitude toward God. Uh, and then he says we shouldn't dismiss God's blessings. Such proofs are good gifts he daily bestows on us. If then this life helps us understand God's goodness, should we turn up our noses at it as if it didn't contain even a crumb of advantage to us? Therefore, it's right that we clothe ourselves in this attitude and affection, that we place this life among those gifts of divine kindness that shouldn't be disdained. And I think we have to understand with Calvin, and we do this all the time. We've done this on this podcast. We do this if you write anything, you write a sermon, you try to write any book. There's always tensions. Mm -hmm. And Calvin is going to, I wouldn't call this a contradiction, but he's trying to make sense of things and he's going to lean a little more on one side when he's making one point, lean a little more on another, and he's trying to balance himself out. So he is saying, I'm not saying you hate everything as if all of creation is bad. He's not being Gnostic and calling you know, matter intrinsically evil. Rather, he's saying that accessing, well, not accessing, but acknowledging that they are not the ultimate thing is actually the proper way of showing gratitude for them. Because you realize that they are merely signposts to the goodness of God. So in a sense, you can't fully enjoy something until it terminates in lifting your mind up to God. Sure. And so he's trying to get at a deeper kind of joy than we're used to because we want to just enjoy a thing in and of itself. And he says, well, no, part of enjoying the thing is the gratitude that you express to God. Part of it is recognizing life as a gift, which assumes a gift giver. Um, so he, I think he's trying to push people toward a sense of all of creation being gift. I, think, I, I do think that makes a little bit more, it reduces the tension a little bit. And like you said, if if Calvin's view is that we should enjoy creation best by sort of bringing it down and not in, not enjoying it as an end in itself, but as a conduit through which we can enjoy God, like John Piper says, eating oranges to the glory of God, like there there's a material good there that is enjoyed more fully when you conceptualize it in terms of it's a gift from God. And I guess if if you do experience bereavement and sorrow it reminds you of these things as gifts that you're not entitled to them. And maybe he's not saying that God, I don't think he's saying that God is judging people and like trying to do this intentionally, right. but it is just, it's a reminder of this earth is not our final home when we experience these miseries. So God can use them, even though it's not like, this is not what you tell somebody who's bereaving that God is trying to help you shed your hold on this life, right? That's not right, that's right. not what Calvin's doing, really. So I guess, yeah, maybe there is a way to sort of soften and nuance the position here. The difficult thing is in the Old Testament, there are kind of sure, direct yeah. correlations of like Israel becomes barren because of sin as a judgment corporately. Yeah. Now, there are barren women who haven't sinned, um, but you also see issues in which people are, you know, their crops are cursed with locusts mm -hmm. and but also 
they experience a great harvest and blessing and victory in war because of their trust in God. Yeah. So, so God can do that. It, yeah. He can do that. I think what Calvin is saying, though, is that we shouldn't be too overly prescriptive about it, perhaps. Sure. And then he says, our desire for a better life then should, in, should increase to the degree that we've dragged away from our twisted love of this life. So he goes back to uh, being very uh, critical of this. Indeed. I mean, he life. says that you can't even desire the next life without growing a, uh, like despising this present life. And so he, he does think that they're kind of parasitic on one another, that your love for the new creation is dependent on your ability to recognize the imperfections here and now. Right. Which, that makes sense. That's fair. And he does say that, therefore, earthly life, when compared with heavenly life, must certainly and readily be condemned and despised. It should never be hated, except to the extent that it makes us liable to sin. Though, properly speaking, our hatred should be towards sin, not toward life itself. Yeah, okay. Which, I mean, which then leads to the solution in chapter five. Right. The He does have a... a a special place for how to use earthly blessings. And this is why I initially thought there was a tension between chapters four and five, but I think we cleared a little bit of what was going on in chapter four. If if we think that what Calvin is saying is that suffering is one way or imperfections in this life are one way that we can learn to long for eternity, then we shouldn't be surprised that God sometimes uses that. Right. But that doesn't denigrate the good things in this world. So long as we understand them in their proper place and have a sort of attitude of gratitude, uh, attitude of gratitude, and we see them as gifts, they're blessings. They're not things that were entitled and things that were owed by God. But the God afflicting us with it now as good Calvinists, I mean, there's a qualified sense, I suppose, Yeah. Um, with primary and secondary causation, but he makes it, he, I think he draws too quick of a connection there where he said it's God doing it to them. Now, he does quote Psalm 119.71, it is good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. Mm -hmm. But there's something about that direct thing where God, it's like God killed your child. Yeah. Uh, just, yeah. It needs some distinctions and fine tuning with that. Because that does. is not a Calvinist or a compatibilist way, I, I think of. Yeah, I think that's it. right. I think, it, I think it's too quick. And I think part of it is just language kind of breaks down when we talk about God's causation here, but we do want to avoid being too quick with saying things like God killed your child or God caused your bereavement in the same way that we think of like linear causation in the world, because God never intends evil. God intends the good in the evil thing, but God never intends an evil. Um, and so having that, it's, it's subtle, but I think it's a position that is coherent and Calvinists and also, I mean, Augustinians throughout history have, have held this view that there is a sense in which God has written every aspect of the story, but there's a sense in which God is not intending the evil aspects of the story. Mm -hmm. God intends the good through the evil, but he never intends the evil. We've got to get the problem of evil uh, podcast. Let's do it. Go yeah, on. we could do the next one. Yeah. But I think it's, it's important because it shows how it's deeply practical. And even the way that you structure your sentences to talk about this, it can come across as really grating to someone who's suffering and you want to make sure to not attribute evil to the will of God. Like Paul says in Romans 9, should we say that God is unjust? No. So God is not a perpetrator of evil. God, like Genesis tells us in the Joseph story, intends good through the evils of agents in the world. And that, that, that preserves God's purity and God's holiness and God's righteous intentions for creation. And the cross is at the center of that. Yeah. Calvin ends his chapter 
by saying, to sum up everything in a word, thank you, Calvin, thank you for summing this up, the cross of Christ finally triumphs in believers' hearts over the devil, the flesh, sin, and the wicked when their eyes are turned to the power of the resurrection. And earlier he talks about how victory is sweet because you've endured the horrors of war. And I think there's something to that where he's saying that the sufferings of this life are meant to point you toward the resurrection in a way that no other thing can. Yeah. And that part of the joy of the resurrection will be the relief from the pains and trials of this life. And the cross is that triumph. It's the triumph of, it's God's victory over the forces of evil, victory over condemnation, victory over sin and death through the cross. That's always tied to the resurrection. And that is a hard thing. I just, hoping in the resurrection, you know, sometimes I think we all feel this. We're like, man, do I really want to be raised from the dead? I mean, that is, that is nuts. That is kind of weird. And there's something about how that doesn't land on us as modern people, perhaps, maybe as it did. I mean, although Calvin clearly sees this problem in his day. That's why he's mm-hmm. writing this book. As you were saying that, it made me think, I mean, Calvin does mention the cross a lot in this book. And it sort of serves for him as a, he's calling the Christian to think back to the cross in all aspects of suffering. And it it serves as a model or a paradigm for God's goodness through, through suffering and through evil. So he says, if you as a Christian are shocked at your sufferings, why would you think that if God didn't spare his own son's suffering? So the cross is a reminder that God is not entitled or we're not entitled to a suffering free life because God didn't even spare his own son. But then he also uses that to remind us that the cross is the epitome of God working good through evil. And so if God does that through the greatest evil ever perpetrated, that God can bring good from that, then we should also be able to take heart and derive some sort of consolation in God's ability to intend good through the evil that we suffer. And so it seems like Calvin's theodicy is not just, well, look, God's sovereign, but God's sovereignty is at display most prominently in the cross because the cross is the most magnificent event of evil in the human timeline. And look about how it brings about the entire restoration of the created cosmos. And so why why would we think that our suffering is unredeemable if that is true? If the cross is true, then it changes everything about how we suffer. It reminds us that we should not be surprised by our suffering. And it reminds us of God's ability to use suffering for our sanctification, for our reconciliation towards him, towards enabling our salvation, undermining our self-reliance and conforming us into the image of Christ. So it really is a Christocentric theodicy. He's not just giving a philosophical defense. He's saying, look, Christian, you have the cross and that changes everything about how you think about your suffering. The Apostle Paul also speaks about how the resurrection can be made manifest in his life. That I think when, when he talks about when I'm weak, then I'm strong. There's this power that comes in the Christian life. And I think it is the power to endure persecutions. It's fascinating. We just did a, a Bible study on First and Second Peter. In First and Second Peter, Peter talks to the first century church, and he's saying to them that the sufferings that you feel, this is before there's widespread martyrdom. So the main suffering that his that you know, at the early church, a lot of them being Jewish, faced was, was social ostracization, was being alienated, was being condemned, was being marked out as heretics. It was slander, all these types of things. And so when we think about suffering in this life, a lot of it has to do not even just with physical suffering, but the suffering we endure when people 
call us names, when people cancel us, when people say that we're backwards, the, the pressure you feel at you know dinner when you have non-believing parents or whatever, or roommates or friends or whatever you're dealing with, cultural issues, that pressure you feel is part of the persecution that Jesus experienced. Just because it's not, you know, you're not getting killed doesn't mean it's not persecution. And I think that also teaches us something that I do think the struggles of this life are the things that, you know, I think that's an accurate focus of the New Testament. But the New Testament also talks about the suffering we experience when we stand for Christ. And so there are times when I'm like, you know, how much of the New Testament um, is directly dealing with us getting sick or us experiencing difficulties in your career or your marriage. I think that's definitely, that counts as a trial. But then I wonder, though, if we're letting ourselves off the hook and going, actually, we're actually very comfortable because we're not actually contending for the faith. That the kind of suffering that is predominantly spoken of in the New Testament is the suffering that comes as a result of you looking proactively proclaiming the faith. And I wonder if we don't see as much power because we're not willing to risk to experience that suffering, to experience that blowback from people. Um, And if we are unwilling to do that, maybe that affects the way that we think about our eternal hope. Because for Paul, he's just going, I'm going to preach the gospel. Because I have this heavenly mindset, I'm going to do a lot. I'm going to plant churches, right? Because my hope is not in this world, I'm going to preach the gospel to politicians, yeah. you know? So I don't know if that animates us in the same way. It's it almost like it, the apostles. it changes how the risk plays out. It's right. almost like, like if you're playing a video game and you know you can respawn, like you can, you <laughs> yeah. can like take yeah, all these, yeah. like you can do all this risky stuff because right, right, you know right. like this isn't the end. So maybe that is how I Paul's sort of great operating. Responding. <laughs> Responding to the dead, yeah. I mean, yeah, it, it's true that if you think that this is the end, you're not going to be as risky, right? But if you think that there is an eternal reality that this is just a part of, then it does change how you think about your life. And in living in light of eternity, we use that phrase, but we don't think about what the implications are. If it's true that this is just a drop in the timeline of our existence, then it should change how we prioritize and it should incentivize us to be risky, even reckless, even, right? Like, marching like demanding an audience with the roman emperor like walking into places that you know are going to stone you or flog you or kill you like that that sort of confidence and just being okay with risk and recklessness is i mean it's kind of crazy and i could see how a secular person would look at that and be like that's just absolutely insane and it is if you think that the timeline is just this narrow window but if there's an eternal reality it does change everything well that is the witness of the early church you see that in acts you see that in the early church after the apostles. In chapter five, Calvin talks about how scripture teaches how we should use the good things of this earth rightly. And he says that we shouldn't neglect the things of the earth. We should make use of life's necessary supports. And we shouldn't avoid those things which seem to serve our pleasure more than our necessity. Instead, we should hold to some rule so that we can use the things of this world, whether they serve necessity or delight with a pure conscience. That's a key thing. Calvin's like, look, don't hate this world. And you can even enjoy it. Just do it with a good conscience. And he also leaves it up to prudence. He doesn't try to make hard and fast rules. He's not saying, I'm saying you got to fast this way or do this or give up this. He's saying, no, I just want you to, I'm going to give you this general perspective of eternity, recognizing your own mortality, dealing with that. And once you've done that, go enjoy the world because you'll, be ha- you'll have the mindset in which 
uh, you will be able to enjoy things rightly. So he's not a killjoy, even though he might sound like it in some passages, but he's saying that you're, you have to understand your life as a pilgrim, right? That, that you are, in a sense, still in exile, that you are still waiting for your final hope. And if that's the case, then have that be the major factor in your decision-making when it comes to what you enjoy and what you spend your time in. Yeah. But we're not going to tell you exactly what to do. Every man has to sort of decide that for himself. If you are fixed, if your eyes are fixed on the right thing, then there's liberty and freedom uh, with how you want to use life's necessary supports. So he's saying, look, it's not just, you know, do things for your necessity. You just have to live. He's saying, no, you can, you can, uh, you can pursue things which serve pleasure so long as you do, do it with the proper perspective and with a good conscience. He does give us some rules, though. He, so he, he does. He, does. Has, right, he has right, a big, right. big spot for prudence, but he says, like, for example, Scripture has a rule for modifying use of earthly blessings. It declares, and this is where he comes back full circle to what he said in chapter one. It declares that all has been given to us by the kindness, kindness of God and appointed for our use under the condition of being regarded as trusts or deposits of which we must one day give account. We must therefore administer them as if we constantly heard the words in our ears, give an account of your stewardship. Mm. So imagine if every time you did anything with your resources here, you had God's whisper in your ear, you will one day give an account of your time, of what you do with your finances, what you did with your, your vision, your hearing, your, your car, your, I mean, it, that, that changes everything. And this is again, part of Calvin's theology, God owns everything. And if we are exiles temporarily living in this world, then we're just borrowing or making use of God's property to do the things that God wants us to. So part of flourishing well is to, we, we need things, we need food, we need shelter, we need water, but there's a caution against, again, overuse or indulgence. If you think of yourself as just a banker holding onto somebody else's money or a steward holding onto somebody else's deposit, it changes how you will dispose of those resources as opposed to thinking of it as you have absolute control over what to do with your time or your money. So in a sense, it's not, it's not yours, absolutely. Because right. you have to one day give an account of it. God's going to tell you, I gave you these talents. I gave you this money. I gave you this time. Did you use them well? And he even, he quotes from Cato, the Roman senator and historian, luxury causes great care and produces great carelessness as to virtue. So here, I mean, Calvin, again, the critique of luxury, another old proverb, those who are much occupied with care of the body usually give little care to the soul. So even, the, even though the liberty of the Christian external matters is not to be tied down to a strict rule, like you said, it is, however, subject to this law. The Christian must indulge as little as possible. On the other hand, it must be his constant aim not only to curb luxury, but to cut off all show of superfluous abundance and carefully beware of converting a help into a hindrance. Don't allow God's blessings and resources to corrode your soul by pursuing them to the detriment of the things that are worthy of pursuit. Don't love objects and use people. Don't invert the order of loves and the priorities that God has laid out for us as this is what it is to be a flourishing human being. Don't, don't pursue wealth, don't pursue luxury, don't pursue your own self-comfort because in doing that, you actually lose your soul, Calvin says, and you undermine your sanctification and you make yourself a worse off human being. He does talk about how some people are too severe 
though. He says that some people are too severe in what they demanded from men. Um, some people say it's barely permissible to eat and drink anything more than bread and water. So he says, okay, yes, there are some crazy people who take it too far. But then he says, but many today look for a loophole so they can excuse the excessive desire of the flesh in using external things. And so I think about it like with, with when people talk about alcohol and they say it's, it's not sinful, which I, I, I agree. Um, and they'll point to, you know, people being Pharisees about being teetotalers. Okay, fair enough. But don't use that as a loophole for you to be overly indulgent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so Calvin is very quick to note the way that he knows people. He knows people. Yeah. And I love this one line. He says that, um, it basically has another principle where he says, those who have few possessions must learn to endure patiently their humble circumstances and not becoming agitated with excessive longing after things. So he says that just because you don't have a lot, there's still a temptation for you to essentially be covetous. Um, he says, uh, the one who cannot bear poverty is most likely to exhibit the opposite vice in the midst of property, pro prosperity. For example, the one who blushes over his cheap clothes will take pride in his expensive ones. And I think about people who say, you know, rags to riches, quite literally with their clothes, just saying, I deserve to be ostentatious. I deserve to flex the money that I have. I deserve to live luxuriously and to be self-indulgent because I used to be poor. Yeah. You know, and there's a lot of that where it's like, no, actually, that doesn't excuse you just because you came from rags to riches. How you are in your rags, right, is going to translate to how you are in your riches. If you're sitting there and, and there's a sense where she says, you've almost got to be okay in your having little, mm -hmm. right, so that you'll be okay in having much. Right. Jesus talks about that, right? But oftentimes, the very drive that gets people to gain a large amount of wealth, which isn't necessarily bad. It's just, you've got to work extra hard not to become proud. And I see that a lot. And I think any of us is tempted toward that. The rags to riches story, it's the American story. And it's different than someone being like, I inherited a trust fund. You know, everyone can bash that person, but we just elevate the rags to riches story and we excuse their excessiveness even among people in the church because of their story. And I think there's a great caution here that Calvin puts out. Not to condemn them, not to shame them, not to say that you've got to be poor, but he knows how quickly our hearts can move off of the eternal things. And again, I, when I say eternal things, I don't mean he goes, stop thinking about the world and just meditate on the ninth dimension. I think what he's saying is through the finite things, through the thing when we recognize how fleeting life is, that is an opportunity to elevate our minds to what is not fleeting so that you can properly look back down on the fleeting things and enjoy them for what they actually are. So that's, I think, the move that Calvin is pushing. At. You can have the same vice irrespective of where you are on the social totem pole. So right. just because you are don't have much doesn't mean that you're not going to have a desire for ostentation or reputation or yeah, like that, that doesn't, it doesn't make you a saint just by virtue of having a little. But if you do have that desire, it's not going to go away once you acquire the things you want. So it's only going to get magnified, I think, is, is part of Calvin's point too there. So the person who is constantly coveting something more, something more grand, is not going to have their appetite satiated once they get that thing. But actually, the appetite might grow for more and more. And so, the vice is always going to grow with 
the objects that are used to fill it. That's a little bit abstract, but there's something like that. When, when you have a little and you just want the next thing, the desire for the next thing is itself just going to keep getting more and more, I guess, unsustainable. And it's not going to, I think of like Captain Barbosa in Pirates of the Caribbean. Like Never saw you, it, Sarah. <laughs> I haven't. It's a, I'm, it's I'm, I don't watch movies. incredibly philosophical movie. I like, I Pirates of the Caribbean. Clips. Oh, yeah. really? Pirates okay. of Black Pearl. All right, all right, all right. He, he spends his whole life searching for this treasure and then he gets it and it turns him into a shadow of himself, just a skeleton, so that he can't even enjoy the things that he was trying to get in the first place. And his appetites just got so big that the scene where he moves into the moonlight and takes a drink of the wine and it goes right through his ribs and falls onto the floor, he can't even enjoy the good things he has because his appetite has become so huge that nothing can fill it. So stuff is not going to answer the greed or the covetousness problem. It's actually going to make it worse. It's actually going to make it, even when you get the thing you want, you can't enjoy it because you're looking to the thing that's on the other side. It's just, it's like a poison that just totally keeps eroding your soul. And Calvin, what he says is that the one who directs himself toward the goal of observing God's calling will have a life well composed. That's what we're after, right? We want a well composed life free from rash impulses. He won't attempt more than his calling warrants. And he says, this is really the key to a satisfying life. Each person in whatever his station in life will endure and overcome troubles, inconveniences, disappointments, and anxieties, convinced that his burden has been placed upon him by God. Great consolation will follow from all this. For every work performed in obedience to one's calling, no matter how ordinary and common, is radiant, most valuable in the eyes of our Lord. So I love this very Protestant impulse, the dignity of the priesthood of the saints, the dignity of, of normal vocation of work. And the constant ladder climbing, the constant achievement things, he's kind of saying like, hey, the, the consolation will come when you are satisfied with the particular calling God has for you in the moment. And calling is so like commercialized. Like when people say calling, they mean like career yeah. that makes them happy and Ooh. gives them money. Yeah, yeah. And I think really it's more of an organic sense of calling of, well, where are you right now? You're a dad, you're called to be a dad. You're a mom, you're called to be a mom. You're a student, you're called to be a student. Where, wherever you find yourself providentially, um, you should seek to find contentment there. It doesn't mean that you don't achieve more things. The Apostle Paul wants to plant more churches. Mm -hmm. There's a godly kind of ambition. Mm -hmm. But there is a sense in which you don't want to be rash. You don't want to be beholden to this sort of desire to extend beyond your calling yeah. in your perfect, in your current moment. You sense you want to be tempered and sober-minded because the trap is that the more we get, the more that we want, mm -hmm. right? And he's saying you can train yourself to really find contentment knowing that providentially, even the troubles God has sent me, he is calling me to be content in them. Mm -hmm. We think that we can only be content when we get what we want yeah. or when our life is free from troubles. Mm -hmm. And Calvin following the scriptures, is presenting this revolutionary perspective that says, actually, you can find contentment in the midst of trials when you're not where you want. Yeah. That is actually possible. It's only possible if the promises of God are true, if you believe in a good, gracious God who has placed you providentially where you are, and that he loves you and he's going to take care of you in that. And that's like so simple, but I probably need to meditate on that more. Yeah. I think most of us do. And this is what's so great about this book. It's a little book on the Christian life. It's not a 50,000 page, massive 
you know, encyclopedic book on the Christian life. He's saying, honestly, Christian life is just a couple simple things done faithfully. You know, it's simple faith. You don't have to have a PhD. You don't have to be super Christian. Just be ordinary Christian and you'll go a long way, maybe further than the people who are quote unquote super spiritual. I mean, I, the, the, the emphasis on the simplicity, Kevin's not telling us anything new that we didn't know before, but he is putting a, a, a new, let's just say like a unique gloss on this. And he's just in, in one sense, telling us what we already know in a different way. And part of the importance of this is reminding ourselves of what we know over and over and over again, repeating the truths of the gospel, reflecting on the promises of God, and reminding ourselves that we are Christians that need to be reminded. We are creatures that need to hear things over and over and over again before they stick. And even when they do stick, we need to be reminded of them. And so I think that that was for me the most interesting thing and most uh, compelling thing about this book is it's not it's not insightful in the sense that he's not adding anything new, but he's telling me something that I already knew in a way that was refreshing to my soul. And I think he's he's a beautiful writer. His his images, his understanding of the church and human psychology, his his Christocentrism, his crucicentrism, cross-centrism, whatever you want to call it. I mean, yeah, he's a beautiful writer. This is our first time, I think, actually delving into the more practical Calvin, and it was it was super, super comprehensive and compelling. Well, I hope you guys appreciated and uh, the, some of the things that, that Calvin has said and the quotes that we have, and, and hopefully this was helpful for you. Again, make sure you pick up a copy of this. If you want to get into Calvin, this is a great place to start. It's very readable. It's concise. It's practical. It's a good entryway to see how Calvin thinks and debunk some of the myths about what Calvin was actually like. Really, really good stuff. I encourage you to pick it up. We'll put a link to it in our show notes. Thank you guys for listening in. Again, follow us on Instagram, That'll Preach Podcast. Go to our website, that'llpreach.io. Uh, subscribe to us on Spotify, on Apple, and uh, make sure you leave a good review. And we'll see you guys next week.